Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Welcome back to Once a DJ. This week I'm delighted to say that we're here with Bronx legend, DJ, producer and creator of the amazing Dusty Fingers and Schoolyard Breaks compilations, Danny Dan the Beatman. Danny, thanks a lot for coming on the show today. How are you doing? Good, good. How's everything? Yeah, good, thanks, man. Good. Just busy, busy. I'm really absolutely delighted to have you on today, so thanks a lot for coming on. Um, So what I'd really like to do is just kind of have a look at your career, really, and how you came into it, because I think with what your kind of position is and your level of influence in hip-hop, hip-hop being 50 as well, and you being kind of around it from... I think more or less the start of it, um, I'm really excited to get into it. So do you want to tell us how you first got into, I guess, got into records and what your early musical influences were? Um, from my mother was basically always, you know, playing records. As a little kid, I would just watch her play records and look at her record collection. That's what got me interested in it. But as a kid growing up, you know, you get involved with baseball comics and all that so i kind of like paid attention to what she was doing looking at her records always looking at her records and looking at all the covers and the artwork and that interests me a lot but i love music in general and and i did a lot of movie watching as well foreign films and stuff like that because my mother's you know english italian so she i had those influences then my father was uh Spanish Puerto Rican from Spain so those influences were all around my house music wise so what sort of stuff was your mum playing well she was playing all kinds of weird stuff like top 40s a lot of Beatles a lot of uh, Brazilian jazz I mean she had an eclectic collection she had Italian music you know like uh, everything that came out in the 60s yeah. That was that was popular as I was growing up. And then as soon as the 70s came around, she started working for a radio station in Manhattan as a receptionist. And she would listen to the radio, what they were playing. And she would say, I like that record. And the DJs were cool with her and they would give her promo copies of stuff. Oh, wow. And that was like, you know... I think I was like six or seven years old when she was coming home with all these records and I was like, all right, cool. I want to, you know, listen to what she bring and she'll play it. And I got into it. Did she 
get you excited about like the rarity with it being promos and things like that. Which like check out this promo version. I mean, believe it or not, she had like uh, David Axelrod in her collection. She was very eclectic back then. It was yeah. crazy, but I didn't pay attention to none of that. I didn't know nothing about Breakbeats yet. None. Mm. It was just she would listen to that kind of music, and I remember a lot of Capitol Records, Liberty Records. She had a, a an assortment of forty fives. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So as the funk and soul started coming in, she was buying all that stuff as well. And she would give me a list of records to go buy records for her at 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 the at the local shop that I used to go to to get forty fives. So as she did that, I just said, Well, I might as well buy some records too. Instead of buying, you know, baseball cards and comic books. I started buying records. And then my cousin was a DJ. He started out very crude with, I don't even know what the name of the turntables were. But they were like, you know, turntables. They would just play one record and the next record. You know, they would wait to a certain part and they come in with the next record, you know. And he taught me how to do that in right. 71, 72. So I was already starting to DJ with my little collection of 45s back then. And... It was just one record at a time. No doubles. So how old were you, would you have been then? I was like seven or eight. So you got an early start then? Yeah. Where about, is it the Bronx that you're from? I'm, I'm from the South Bronx originally. So I grew up in 149th Street in Southern Boulevard. That's when I got my start. Then I moved to 170th Street in 68, 69 stood there for about no it was 67 um so from 1960 to 67 i lived in 149th then i moved to 170th and then we stood there to about 68 69 then we moved uptown near fordham road and 183rd but all that all through that time my mother would uh ask me to go buy her records and stuff like that so i was like cool you know i'll get you some records what were the guys in the record shops like with you then? If you were if you were kind of going in and buying quite quite a good taste of sort of stuff, were they like, oh, it was this kid? They didn't say nothing much, man. I was I would go there with a list of records, and they would just pick them out for me, and I would buy them. They were like, uh, I think at that time, forty cents a record. Wow. And can you imagine? So like, I <laughs> I would go there with like three dollars and buy me a bunch of forty fives. You know what I mean? Yeah for myself and then i remember them going up to 50 cents then to 60 cents then to 75 cents you know as i kept buying them but um I, at, at one point i i went to like a cool herc party that he did out in cedar park in 75 i believe it was and i seen him playing you know two of the same record making a merry-go-round and then he, he just didn't do that he did that with two different records and go back and forth but when he had the doubles he would go back and forth mm. and i was like that's genius i want to do that so then i started buying every record that i could but i couldn't find certain records that he was playing until i started sitting there and just watching them i went to every jam and i would look at the covers i was like oh okay i know what that record is you know what i'm saying I had a photographic memory. 
<laughs> so I was starting to buy records. Then I found this record store in Manhattan where all these guys would get their breaks from. It was called Downstairs Records. And it was called Downstairs, Upstairs Downstairs Records. So, like, if you're coming in from the street on 42nd, you go downstairs and there's this corridor. One record store was across with 45s in it. And a, a diagonally across was where the albums were sold. And they had Apache there, but they wanted $100 for it. I was like, that's too much money. I can't, I can't afford that. Was that like Herc's sort of signature break then? Yeah, one of his signature breaks for sure. Yeah. And I started learning about, I started going to see Flash and what they were playing and different other DJs from my neighborhood and, and other guys that were just into it, that were just wanting to know and let me up on breaks and I would let them up on breaks. So we, we had like a little crew of guys that were, you know, into records early on. Yo, you got to get this record. Oh, you, you don't have that record? I was like, well, yeah, I got Funky Penguin. I got The Breakdown. I got G-Night. I got all these 45s. You know what I'm saying? And then we started getting up on more and more records through Flash and Theodore and, and, and of course, Cool Herc and then JC and DJ Clark Kent. They were playing certain amount of records and then other djs were coming out so i would go to every party i can just to learn about records so by the time 70 75 i had already i had singles of a lot of the records i just had to buy doubles yeah. so another copy of each and then i was learning every day like i was like downtown like learning about what records they had that they were selling for breaks in that record store and I would find them somewhere else if they, if they were cheaper. Because I could get them cheaper in my neighborhood. You know what I mean? Because Manhattan was more expensive. Yeah, would you still, still have been at school at this point then? Yeah, I was in school throughout the whole time, yeah. How you was school? Were you, were you into school or were you just thinking about breaks? No, no, I was, I was, I was at school. I had to be into school because I would get rewarded for doing good in school. From my parents, you know, I would get money, you know what I'm saying? Mm. I, I, I never missed a day of school until I got to high school. So I was always there because we live like next to my school. <laughs> From, so I was like, I was never late. I was never absent, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then when I moved around the corner to the uh, junior high school, it was it was two blocks up the hill around the corner from me. So it was like. I had to be there all the time, you know, mm. and that was good. I was I was a good student, fair student. I would make my grades and everything, and I had no problems in school. So, but summertime would come, that was the time to go rampant. You know what I mean? But uh, in my, uh, I think my seventh seventh year of school, junior high school or eight, I would I would go to Manhattan a lot. You know what I'm saying? And I would go to my father's job, and he would give me money to go buy records. And my mother, too, when she had the money, you know what I'm saying? But, yeah, my father was a big help as far as handing me money to go buy stuff, you know what I mean? Then I started buying equipment. And my father bought me my first uh, two turntables. They weren't really that, that good. I forgot the name of them. They, were, they had wooden bases. They had no pitch control. Yeah, and I had a mixer with knobs. It wasn't a slide fader yet, and so I I got that until like maybe a couple of years later in '77 
when I got the slide feeder. But I learned on that, and I learned what my cousin had. My cousin had professional equipment, so he had a GLI. He had 1100s by then, you know what I'm saying? So it sounds like your parents were really kind of enthusiastic and, and kind of nurturing with it then. Yeah, they knew that I was into it, so they 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 knew that it kept me out of trouble. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because kids could do a lot of crazy shit, and I did a lot of crazy shit. That's not all I did, you know, but my main focus was buying records. Yeah, because, I mean, how kind of... I mean, I'm from a little village in England, but like how... How kind of risky was it traveling around New York at that time? For me, it was nothing. I knew my way around. I knew my way around. I mean, and, and the subways were the easiest way to get around at the time. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because uh, that's how I learned how to get around because I was into graffiti too in those early days. Right. So we used to go racking up for spray paint and I used to hang out with these older kids so they would take me with them and since i was the youngest at you know compared to them they used to put me into the store to steal all the spray paint <laughs> and if i get caught they're just gonna slap me on the wrist if they get yeah. caught they could do some time but at that time they would just look out for me and if security guards came out the store running after me they will fight them for me they what are you doing trying to trying to attack that young boy and they would give me time to get away right and and i'll i don't know depending on where we were we'll make a plan to meet me like two blocks this way in an alleyway somewhere and then i will wait there until they got back to meet me and then from there we just kept on and go, you know what i mean yeah yeah and, and and then they would take me to the train yard they would go they would go spray paint they'd give me a couple of cans so i could do what i do you know what i'm saying and that was it. i wasn't no big time writer but i would just tag my name and that was it and watch these guys do pieces mm. and that was yeah one of my friends just passed away too tracy 168 right he was one of the guys that i i went with to like rack up and did some work with you know what i'm saying back in the day him and his crew and yeah we had great times back then you know but they always knew i was into music i love my music and everything so by t by the time 1977 came about, I built my own system with the yeah. with a rack, amplifiers. I was trying to mimic all the other guys that I would see do block parties, because before that I was begging them to get on the turntables, you know. And they was like, "Who's this guy?" But I would come with different music and play it, and play it like what Flash and them used to do. Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Oh, okay, you know, he knows what he's doing, you know. Let let him do it." And I bring my own records. And I was like, yo, what record is that? You know, they would, they would ask me. I was like, there's some record I, I learned about in my digging, you know what I'm saying? And I just kept it going from there. Were, there, were, were you in that sort of situation? Would you be quite, if it wasn't kind of guys that were in that network, you know, you're saying like Clark and people like that, you'd all kind of help each other right. out. If it was people outside of that group, were you a bit more kind of secretive about, your records yeah i was always secretive about my records at that time i didn't let nobody know i had magic marker all my records mm. you know what i'm saying so i wouldn't give anybody no information really i'll just say yeah i found this record you know when i was downtown looking for old records you know and they were like damn man you're playing a lot of good stuff i was like yeah that's why i told you let me get on you know and that was it 
So that would be sort of around the time that disco's coming in as well. Exactly. Yeah. The 12 inches were coming out, so I had to switch from 45s into buying albums. And then I, I was starting to buy a lot of albums at that time. At that time, I had about two or three crates full of records because disco records were coming out in 75, 76. So I was buying a lot of that. A lot of that had breaks on it as well. They were called disco breaks, but, you know, that's the stuff I would play with my cousin and all that. Yeah. And I would, I would listen to records he was playing. I'm like, wow, I could use that for what I'm doing with the doubles. And I would buy, the, you know, two copies of that. And all those records were fairly cheap at that time. They were like $2.99, $3.99 an album. Yeah. The most I paid for an album, like Apache, I paid $7.49 for that at this other record store and i think i bought it in 1976 because when i got up on that record it was in 75 and then i found another copy in my neighborhood for five bucks and i took my mother to you know to listen to it i was like check out this a version of apache because she had the old school one with the guitars yeah the shadows yep she she used to play that to death i was like you got to listen to this version and once she heard that, she lost her mind. And she was like, tape it for me. I was like, yes, I will, because I'm going to use this for DJing. And she was like, okay, no problem. And I taped it for her. She used to run it all the time. She loved the whole album. She was like, man, this, this, this record is great. I was like, yeah, man, the way they did the record, it's an all-time classic. To this day, you still play it, and it's a yeah. sure shot. You know what I'm saying? Did you ever hear the version that I put out on Schoolyard Breaks? No. I don't know if you if you're familiar with that. It's by the Bongo Rockers. It's a French version. It's a I've French. Not, group. I'm going to just write that down now. It's really dope. Bongo Rockers. Le Bongo Rockers. But yeah, because you've you've got an original Apache, haven't you? I'm sure I've seen you post it on Instagram. Oh, of course, of course, I have the original. Yeah, but I also have you know the remakes. I have different vi uh, versions of that record. Mm. so when you were getting into the disco did did the djs kind of start moving from the block parties into the clubs at that point well my cousin had an after hours club so i used to visit him in 74 75 it was an after hours club and it was basically everybody was doing you know block parties during the summertime but the winter times that they had clubs to dj in i didn't have a club i wasn't really old enough to be in clubs yeah unless i was escorted by someone older and i would get in with them because what they're gonna say you know they're not gonna leave yeah. me out there in the street so and then i looked older for my age anyway back then so it was like it was cool so i was a teenager at the time a young teenager you know, but uh, I'm hanging out, you know, in Latin clubs. We was playing a lot of Latin music back then and disco records. And then um, we made our own clubs, like using a PAL. We'll have a one night affair or, or, or school or schoolyard gymnasium or at a church. They'll have a hall where you can rent out. Mm. And we'll throw parties there and we'll charge at the door. And we pay, you know, a certain amount of money, like $300 to get the space. 
and then we'll charge at the door and make you know double our money back you know if we're lucky you know what i mean yeah and that's how we used to dj back then in the winter times but in the summer times we dj for free in the street mm. just to get a name because at that time i was getting a lot of bookings in the winter time to do house parties and you know other parties like they'll rent out a space and i'll dj there and i would charge them three hundred dollars for the whole night and at that time in the you know late 70s early 80s that was good money yeah and if i would book like two or three different shows at, at the next day after the other like friday saturday and sunday i would get paid you know what i mean that's a lot of money to be making, isn't it, at that age? Yeah, I was I was making I was making pretty good money, you know. And I had a partner just to just to just to help me out and we we'll split the money. So with the summer summer sort of block parties, was that just to keep the reputation going to to make sure you'd be getting the bookings? Exactly, but but also to have fun and meet girls. Yeah. I I read something the other day that was saying that you would when you got with the girl, sometimes some of the records out of their parents' collection might kind of end up with you. Mm-hmm. And that, that maybe caused some caused some breakups. No, it didn't cause no breakups. It it it, it caused uh I couldn't go to their house anymore. <laughs> Cause their mother will always ask me about their records. And breakups were were like I didn't care about that. You know, there was there was like thousands of girls that I that I've dated, and I all went to their mother's houses and took their records. Like you ain't using those. Give me that. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was like, oh, but you better give me my mother's records. So I was like, don't worry about it. You know, they were, you know where I live at. Can you remember what the what the best record was that that you got from a girlfriend's parents' collection? Oh wow. Hmm. It depends. I know um I know some James Brown records were a part of the collection, some Spanish records that had breaks on it for the B boys. And um just some, you know, nice records that I know that had something on it that was fu- that yeah. was funky. Some forty fives, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, it's definitely stuff that I could use as far as DJing, even some disco records that I might have one copy of, I, I find another one, you know. And, you know, they weren't using the records. They were just there, you know. Sometimes the mother would never be there. I would never meet the mother. Mm. And I would go with the girl to her crib, you know, just to hang out for a little bit. I looked through the records. Oh, can I borrow this? She's like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Because she was nice with me, you know what I mean? And then I'll, they'll never get the records back. that's the way it was and if only one pressed me really hard i need that record back my mother's gonna kill me so i went to the mother and i I bring the record back and she met me and she's like yo so you don't want to have my record and everything i'm like yes but i took care of her you see i'm a dj i you know i use it oh but you can have the record then go ahead so i wound up keeping it anyway it was crazy you know what I'm saying? And it's like, you know, records are, you know, they're an expense, needles, turntables, mixers, wires, 
amplifiers, all that shit's an expense. But I was able to manage it by myself. Yeah. No one helped me get anything. I didn't have a crew of guys chipping. Like, usually it would be that way. And I was like, whoever wanted to be down with you, uh, you had to chip in with, for something. You know what I'm saying? Buy records or something. But I'd rather have them give me the money and I'll buy everything I need. Yeah. Instead of buying pieces of equipment. And I, ha- I had done that with, with a friend of mine and he's backstabbed me. And he sold it to someone else and they came to my house collecting it. Out of nowhere. I was like, oh, shit. Okay, this, I can see how this guy's moving. Mm. All right. He gave me all his records, but he sold the amplifier that he bought because my other amplifier was in the shop. Yeah. I was like, okay. I unhooked the amplifier. I gave it to him. That's all he bought. I had the preamp still, and I had another amplifier in the shop. I just had to buy an, that same one back because it was a bigger model. It was it had more wattage. Yeah. So I saved up for a couple of weeks, and I got all that back. That was no sweat off my back, but it's the way people were like, I learned from that day, don't let no one chip in for equipment. Mm-hmm. But at that time, I was like, hey, you want to be down? You got to chip in. You know what I mean? So is that effectively kind of your sound system and crew? Right. So basically, I, I paid for everything. I got my speakers done myself because I, I found the, the cabinets were in an old club. And they were throwing the speakers out. So my a friend of mine took them out of the club and bring them to me. But they were 15-inch scoops. So I was like, damn, these speakers are so big. I could make them into 18. And I did. I'm glad I did that. I threw some EVs in that bitch. Mm. The bass that came out of there was retarded. You know, the way the speakers were designed. Uh, the Jamaicans had built that speaker, and they they did some ill shit to it. And then I had my man put in my uh, my new woofers for eighteen inches, and he and he secured them, and he did a crossover and everything. So they were great speakers. So how did you learn that kind of technical side of things? I learned because I was hanging around my cousin. He had equipment, and right. I bought I bought cheesy equipment in the beginning. I bought an amplifier. I had like gem sound. They were, before they were gem sound speakers, they were USS speakers. And they were, and then gem sound kind of like took those designs and started making speakers. So I had a couple of those. Then I was like, you know what? This is whack shit. I gotta get some real shit. And I bought some. I bought some real good speakers. After I got those cabinets, and they were heavy as hell. You would need at least three people to help me lift them up the stairs mm. to get it to my apartment i live on a fifth floor but it was like a sixth floor walk up because of the entrance yeah you had to get stairs to go into the lobby and there was no elevator i was like Shh. but that kept me strong and it kept me fit so so um yeah i had all that stuff upstairs and then i had these uh speakers that went on top with 15 inch i had jbl 15 inch mm speakers and then i built the tweeter box to go on top of that and the sound system was pure it was nice clean and i had that for about you know good 10 years from 77 to 87 yeah i made a lot of money yeah so were you just was it consistent sort of three days a week all through that period it could have been 
It could have been, but it wasn't all the time. It was like certain times of the year. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. So what was it like being around in New York when in the sort of early 80s when hip-hop went global? I mean, it was phenomenal. That time was like the best time ever. We all had a part in what we were doing, I believe. Mm. I was always going out, too, to different clubs, to different, and also I was part of record pools back then, too. So I would get all the new records, and whatever records I didn't get, like from the club scene or whatever, I would find on my own. Like every time I was just looking for new sounds, new sounds and new stuff to 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 keep my DJing interesting. I was a mobile DJ, never had a residency in a club ever. But I played in clubs. Right. I played in clubs. I bring my records and played in clubs and did special things with different people. But I never saw myself being trapped to one place. I like to travel. Did you kind of have a reputation as a DJ for kind of the same sort of thing that you have in terms of the compilations? Was it like Danny's like a skillful guy, but he's like, were you playing things that were a bit different to everyone else at the time? Well, it depends on the the setup that I had was always to introduce new music mm. with the old so like I would mix it up like new records with and these are old records by the way these are not new these are like records you know from the 70s yeah. and I was still playing that into the 80s but I will find newer stuff to go with so I would I would do BPMs so if it, let's say I'm walking um you know assembly line by the Commodores and I found something like in the 80s let's say the funk is on I will play those back to back do you know those two records no assembly line and, and the funk is on by instant funk I might they, have heard it. they sound similar but I used to play those back to back which was interesting because they were made at two different times. Right. One was made in the 80s, one was made in the 70s. So it's clearly they, they probably, the one in the 80s had the influence mm. from the one that came out in the 70s, but it was two different records. So I would just beat match all my stuff. So I would play like an unknown record in between those two or right after those two. And then I would come in with something that's familiar, but I would yeah. keep it going. And then I play a couple of more that were, you know, like, what the hell is that? They never heard it, but they were jamming to it. And I would watch the reaction. As long as they were dancing and everything, and they didn't stop and look around, it was cool. Because I did that with a lot of records. And I would just play them the one time. Because I always had new records to play. And the more popular records, you know, you had to play them. Like every time you do a party, if it was yeah. popular, you know what I'm saying? Like you had to throw that in rotation. But when it came to the break part of the of of the jam, I would just play a lot of different records back to back. And that's what made me popular of playing different music. I would even have dance records and R&B records that were not from that country 
which they, I could have got something from England, you know. And um, I would get a lot of records from England back then because I stopped buying records in America for the reason why that they were making a lot of records on styrene. Yeah. Especially on the 45. So I would order my records in England, France, and in Germany over the phone and pay by credit card and they'll mail me the records. So that's how I used to buy a lot of my records. And that was very important to me to get, you know, vinyl, vinyl copies because I was buying these styrene records and cutting them up and they were staticky as soon as you play them. I was like, why are these records sounding like this? What the hell is going on? And, and this man explained to me, they're not making it from vinyl. It's a styrene. It's, it's not made for you to be scratching and putting your fingers on it. I said, so where can I get all, you know, some vinyl copies of these records? It's like, I, you could mail order them from England and France. I was like, cool. He ripped out this book. He wrote down some names of some record stores that carried records that I would call them up over the phone order my records and they would ship them to me my mom used to let me use her credit card which was very very useful at the time <laughs> and i would give her the cash yeah right then and there i was like they charged you 79 dollars for the records here's 79 dollars in cash and then she would pay the bill when when it came yeah and that was it i was like so i never owed my mother no money she was cool with it and that's the way i, I rocked and she would do it any time for me. Yeah. And I heard that, didn't you get your, weren't you quite early on getting the 1200s as well? I had a friend in the military. He sent me a brochure. He was in, stationed in Okinawa, Japan. Mm. And he sent me a brochure on these turntables. I'm like, wow, those things are badass. He's like, when are they coming out? It's like, I could get them soon and I could get them shipped to you. I'm like, send me a pair. So at the end of 79, I think it was November or October. Matter of fact, it could have been October. They came to his mother's house. And he also got a Yamaha amp, I think. So I paid for the turntables. And he wanted the amp, but I told him, yo, that amp that you bought, can you get me one? And he's like, yeah, but... You know, it's not that type of amp that you could use, you know, for what you want to use it for. It's more, it's mainly for the house. Yeah. I was like, okay. So I looked into that and I basically got um, some other stuff, SAE and stuff like that uh, from a shop not too far from my house. That's how I built my system. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So this was early on, but yeah, like. When I grabbed that those turntables, I was like, yo, these are these are it, you know? And then the following year in nineteen eighty, they were selling them downtown for two hundred and fifty dollars a piece. So for the pair five hundred. That was pretty cheap back then for those turntables. Mm. When they first came out, did they did they just kind of blow up and just everyone had a pair and they were in the clubs and things like that not yet they weren't in clubs yet mm. i i think i was the first ones one of the first ones to ever have a pair yeah 
Crazy. Were you in the 80s? I appreciate I'm going kind of back and forth a bit here. Yeah. Did you at any point, you know, sort of in the mid-80s when sampling was kind of getting bigger, you know, post Marley Mile starting working and um, and that sort of thing, did you and the other guys in your... Were you still seeing kind of Clark and people like that and hipping each other up to records? And then were any of the producers coming to you guys for samples or anything? Mm-mm. That that didn't happen until like the 90s when producing started to get big in the late in the late 80s early 90s that's a that's when I stopped DJing in 87 and I started doing production right but everybody was still secretive no one came to each other you know I know if if they knew that that if you were using something it was about trying to get who can get the record out first. Yeah. In those days. And then you have to scrap that idea if someone else used it. Because you didn't want to be a biter. No one bit back then. You had to be original. Mm. You know what I'm saying? But I didn't care. I, if Biz samples something, I'm going to sample it. Yeah. And use it my way. You know what I'm saying? I didn't care about that. Me and Biz were cool back then anyway, so it didn't matter. So if I I liked his style of music that he produced with Marley because he gave a lot of records to Marley Moore. Marley didn't have the records. Biz had the records. Because one of my friends said that he'd heard that you'd given Biz the Freddie Scott record. Yeah, I gave Freddie Scott and, and the Lee Dorsey. Wow. I was supposed to produce that record for him in the studio, but he couldn't wait. He was impatient. I'll wow. put those two together, and I chopped the Freddie Scott pianos on my keyboard. But I made it where you couldn't hear the drum breaks. So all you heard was like the, the tunes because I EQ'd it, and it sounded very tinny. So I had it like with a lot of reverb stretching it out. So I had ring, ba-boom, ba, ba-boom, boom, bing, ding, ring. <laughs> Ding, 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 ding. You know, I would piece it together. Ding, 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 ring. And then I would chop that up five different times and I played it over the beat. And this was very crude. And then I, I once I taped it all together, then I looped that whole thing. And all you heard was the drums and the piano together. Yeah. And I started it off with a four bar drum break by itself. And then I let him hear it. But he couldn't loop it together. I said, nah, I didn't loop it on top of each other. I had to chop it. I was chopping right. it way before people started chopping stuff. Like That was the only way it would work because the beats would clash. Freddie Scott was a little bit more faster. And, it, and the t so the drums on, on Lee Darcy were very hard because I had a different pressing of it. So it was really like... You know what I mean? Mm. That was a great that was a great time though. But he got into the studio, he had someone play it over, which was perfect. And that record was a, a monster hit. To this day, you you could still play it. Yeah, I mean that that shows the quality of your ear. Yep. You know, piecing that together and, and this, what that hit became, you know, and still is. Yeah, and then he had to take the record to study it 
so he can make the lyrics, you know? Because the record is not named You Got What I Need, it's just a friend. So he's yeah. talking about a girl. He made a story about a girl. And then um, the hook was You Got What I Need. And that, that became a monster hit because he sang the record. That's what made it even better. Because yeah. he tried to get all kinds of people to sing it. And they wouldn't do it. So he's like, I'm going to do it myself. And that's what made the record special. Him trying to sing. It made it a comedy, you know, kind of thing. And it was his heart bleeding out because of the story. And that's what made sense of why that record was made. Yeah. Are we okay to just stay on bids for a couple of minutes? Yeah. Yeah, like... um Something that I noticed the other day when I was researching it, and I appreciate this is more of like a now thing, is I was looking because I saw I was watching the video of you playing on Busy's Seven Inch Technics. Oh yes, I, I'm the only DJ to ever DJ on them besides yeah. him. <laughs> That's crazy. No one else. He wouldn't let no one else touch him. And I was looking, and it looks like he's got. I think in the, the video of you doing it they look like they're in a 1210 finish. But then in another video, it looks like he's got a pair that are in a 1200 finish mm -hmm. or the other way around. So did he have two pairs? Yes, he did. Wow. He had the 1210 finish, which are the black and he had the silver ones and I was DJing on the silver ones. Yes. And then I think that in the park video, the first one that came out, that he, he was the, doing um, the two tens. Yeah. Yeah. I was there that day too. I was there that day. He was he was he was yelling at me. I was like, "Yo, play uh 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 seven minutes of funk with the bongos." He's like, "I got you." And then he, <laughs> and then he finally played it. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so I was looking at your discogs then, and um, I couldn't find much on your production. I feel like your disc, the Discogs entry is just probably quite shallow. Right. So could you just talk a bit about your production? Well, I did a lot of records that were just singles. So I did uh, a record on Select Records that uh, me and the Female Dream did on Select. It was a 12-inch. Then after that, I think I did uh, Entice, Walk a Little Closer, I did do up in the Bounce Squad mm. in the nineties. Uh, on Bounce Squad Records is a white label with red. Because what's what's the break that that's got? The break I I, I took uh, Louie, uh, Alan Tucson, mm. and I think I did another version of of You Got What I Need on the other side, uh, and, and chopped that up and used it. And I did like the Evil Twins. These are records that I remember. I did uh, a bunch of other records that never really made it to vinyl. Right. But uh, but uh, I did stuff in the studio. And basically, after the Bounce Squad, man, I kind of like deaded it with them because we we had big plans to do a very big project and it fell through and i got tired of it so i did stuff with the with with the evil twins uh a group called footprints and 
that, those were like my last vinyl records I ever did as far as rap production. Yeah. But I started getting into collecting a lot of weird records from the 80s until the 90s. And I was like, I'm sitting on all these records. I'm not doing nothing with them. I might as well just put them out on Dusty Fingers. So that's how I made that compilation series. Mm. Had you been around Lou then when he was doing the Ultimate Breaks and Beats? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, I was around Breakbeat Lenny. Right. Breakbeat Lenny was the original owner of the company. Lou just edited the records. Right, got you. So I wasn't really around when he did that because that was done in a studio. Mm. But I was, yeah, Lenny was my mentor. He taught me how to buy records. Right. He's like, if you see 50 copies of the same record, buy them all. And I was like, yeah, it makes sense. They're two for a dollar. Might as well buy them and resell them for $5 each. Mm. Make my money back. You know what I'm saying? So I'll make like four fifty profit. You know? And if they buy doubles, you know, it's $10. You know, two for 10. You know? I was making my money back. You know, $9 profit. Were you always very kind of careful about buying when you were buying secondhand records about buying really clean ones because everything I've heard that you've done sounds really clean. Well, the thing is this. In my early days, nah. I bought records and I beat them shits up. I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. But like I said, when Lenny taught me how to buy records, he's like, if you see 50 copies of the same record, buy it. I listened to him. So I had multiple copies of stuff. So I will have like six copies of certain records. That's the that's the least I had. I'll always keep four, two for DJing, two for backup, and two just in case. You know, and if it and if it kept on, I had more copies. They would just they'll just be there. <clears throat> in the seventies, seventy four, seventy five. 76 up to 77 my records were shit they were beat to <laughs> shit but i started getting older and saying hey i'm spending money on these records i gotta keep them nice and, and clean you know what i mean or very playable because back then we used to dj on we used to make a table we'll take two trash cans a piece of plywood throw a turntable and a mixer on there and a little lamp and a probably a tape deck or an amplifier and then plug the speakers up to it and throw a jam. You know what I'm saying? And then you stick the records underneath the turntable. They're scraping on the wood, bare wood, mm. you know? And then that's how they would get dirty. And there might be another joint on the other side that I might have put out later on. So I will have to get a new copy. Yeah. Everything I put out, though, like I had new copies or near mint or playable copies, but certain records I had to clean up by hand through these programs, you know what I'm saying? That would help me clean the record, restore the record. Yeah, so are all the Dusty Fingers then, are they all, um, are they all produced from vinyl copies? Most of them, yes. Some of them are not. Some of them were done from tapes. Reel-to-reel tapes. Yeah. And some of them were uh, from CDs. But I still had to master it. 
Yeah. Because how did you learn mastering? Because mastering's a serious dark art, right? Well, I mean, it's 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 learning how the record would sound, right? But louder and and brighter, but without distortion. That's how I would master the record. And I would I would never use limiters or anything. At first, I was using that, but I stopped doing that. I wanted to make the record sound as natural as possible, but loud in your face. And I, I recorded everything in waves and kept them as waves. I never did MP3s because that's for, that's for kids. So mm. I keep all my stuff at waves and my stuff sounds incredible. Yeah. You know, and you know that from the records that I pressed. Yeah, because this is the thing. I mean, I remember I, I Did was... you get to listen to the tape I sent you yesterday? Yeah. Awesome. That crazy or what? Really good. Listen to that. Listen to that again, and you see the quality on that. Well, yeah, that's why I asked because I was thinking as well because I was listening to that and thinking about the quality of it and um, thinking back to when I when I got the the compilations. I I had a few of the Dusty Fingers, not all of them, mm -hmm. but just thinking about that in comparison to other compilation series I've had. Right. You know, they're re they're really nice quality compilations. Yes. Um, did you? Did you run, is Strictly Breaks your label? Strictly Breaks was a label that my friend made up. Right. My part of that record label was, I had Strictly Break 12-inch, Strictly Drums, Dusty Fingers, and Schoolyard Breaks. Yeah. Those were my records. Then he did double albums. And the, and the Strictly Breaks where he would name who would use it. Yeah. That was his like, thing, my partners. Like the, the Jigger collection and Tribe collection and all that yeah, stuff. That's all, that's yeah, all his stuff mm. that he made. Because I didn't like telling on nobody. I, wouldn't, <laughs> right, yeah. I kept that a secret. And plus, I knew everybody. So that would be odd. So that's why I made Dusty Fingers. It's like none of you knew about these records. I put them out. No one used them yet, and if you did use them, I just put it out. I didn't name nobody who used it. That was his gimmick, but that sold more records than my records. And he got right. all those, and he hired me to do each and every one of those records <laughs> because he had no records. So all of that's from my record collection. Right. Because... Um like, what, so what sort of year did you start doing Dusty Fingers? I started in 96. Right. And and the first one dropped in 97. So then how many a year were you doing? Because there's, there's quite a few volumes. I, there. I, well, there's, there's one through 17 on vinyl. Yeah. And I have 18 through 95 digital. Yeah. Okay. So I sell those digital. And... I email them to my customers, whoever buys them. Yeah. Now I sell it as not as a compilation that's it's only from my record collection that I put together these records. Mm. So it's my record collection. I brand it as Dusty Fingers and Schoolyard Breaks and Soul Treats. And that's from my record collection. And if you want to buy my records, cool. It's my records yeah. I pay for and I'm selling them. They're not online. You got to get them from me direct. 
and I email you them and you know you buy as many as you want and I give you a good deal and that's it yeah so with with the dusty fingers because give given the sort of impact that they've had were you I how many were you kind of pressing of each cop of each um volume well every time I pressed it was a thousand yeah and then I'll have to repress because they were selling like 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 crazy mm. but no more than 5,000 records were sold per per volume yeah so it was either between one and three and one and five you yeah. know what i'm saying which was and 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 check this out i changed pressing plants many times around that time because a lot of pressing plants went out of business yeah my first pressing plant was universal music and they said you ain't got permission to press these records you can't press no records here get out of here <laughs> and they they threw me out of you know what i'm saying and then I went to the next person plan. I was with them for about a year. Then I lost all my metal plates and masters and everything. They went out of business. They, they didn't even give me my shit back or nothing. I lost all that shit. So that's a waste of money. I lost a lot of money. Then we did it again. We had the place for a few, few years. And then they went out of business and sold the machines. And they didn't let us know nothing either. They just... The only thing we were able to pick up is is the art, the covers, because we pressed a lot of them. Yeah. That's when I was doing the twelve inches, and I already did two albums from the schoolyard breaks, and I did 15 12 inches, I think. Fifteen with you know one song on each side. So. And they were basic, you know, basic records, but they were the essential records that DJs wanted to cut up, and the sound quality was great. Yeah, and it's nice that they're it's nice that they're on twelve inch as well. Yeah, they were cool, you know, to have on twelve inch. Yeah, like the the, the two series kind of have very different jobs to do, don't they? You know? Yeah, yeah, because it's it's like that's the stuff that I grew up with. Yeah, and the Dusty Fingers was more world wide world because of my mother's influence. My father's influence in Spanish music, my cousin with the Spanish, my mother with the Brazilian, Italian, and English, and records from Paris she had. My mother listened to everything. So did she, was she kind of up on library music early? Because there's a lot of library music, isn't there, in the Dusty Fingers? Well, the, it, it, that's the stuff I found when I, when I was working as, a, as a, a, a messenger in the city. I went to a jingle house that were moving from New York to California. And I, was, I had a rush delivery for them. So I, I had to bring this tape from somewhere else. I don't remember where it was. It was some building in Manhattan, downtown. And I had to bring it all the way back to the, to the jingle house up in 50-something Street. And I was in Lower Manhattan. And I bring it to them. And they were saying, I was like, hey, hey, you guys got a great studio here. What do you guys do? Oh, we do jingles and da-da-da-da-da. And we have music for, you know, television and, and whatever. Because they had a lot of monitors and all these machines. And they were moving. And I saw them taking all the shit out. I said, so where are you guys moving to? What's going on? And then I walked by. There was a mad room full of records. He's like, yeah, we're trying to get out of here because we're moving to California. 
was like, yo, so what are you doing with all those records? <laughs> He's like, we're going to throw them out. I was like, no, 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 no. Give them to me. I'll take them. He's like, be here at 8 o'clock tonight, and I'll meet you in the loading dock, and I'll bring the records. We'll box them up and bring them. So they had eight boxes of records. Wow. Okay. I was happy as fuck because I didn't know what was in them. But at that time, I was very busy working. So I came. I had money on me. I was like, I can't carry this on the subway. And I was a walking messenger. I didn't I didn't ride a bike. I'd rather, I'd rather be on the train or a bus getting to where I need to go to deliver packages. And they ha I had this bag that I could fit all kinds of stuff in it. It looked like an art bag. Where you, uh, you know, portfolio art bag where you could mm. put big paintings inside of it. Well, I had that. And I would put, you know, like, you know, all kinds of, you know, different size packages in there. And I would be able to deliver them. To, so I would, like, take from my home base job and, and, and take, like, five or six different packages and deliver them within, you know, a 20, 30 block radius real quick i would just i knew how to get around in the city yeah. by walking i would go underground it, it was crazy i could take tunnels if it was raining and i'll get i'll come out of some other building and it was crazy i was just i just knew the city like that so i'll knock all that shit out and they would give me car fare so guess what's my next stop the record store <laughs> so they would think I would take about maybe an hour and a half to do the job and I'll get the shit done in 35, 40 minutes and I, the rest of the time I'll be in a record store looking for records buying the records too and sticking them in my bag and leave that was it and then go back to the same place and they were like oh you gotta go pick up or I could call from outside and say listen I just finished I'm at this street da 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 where I go from here so that was the lucky day for me when I went downtown to pick up that tape and went to that jingle house. It just so happened I got all those records. I was like, damn. And they were library records, all of them. So they had different types. They had uh, Bruton, KPMs. Um, all them shits that you could think of, you know, across the board. Like the Qs, the... the um, What's that? The sound, sound guard records. I think it was all types of stuff. Or uh, Tannin records. They had all kinds of joints, and I stuck them in my closet. This was like in the eighties, okay, eighty four, eighty five. When I got those records, I didn't even know what they were. Crazy, right? Yeah, because that's. I mean, that's a, that's kind of early on the library records, isn't it? Yeah. But I didn't know what they were. No yeah. one knew what they were. So I stuck them in this closet that I had that would reach really high up. And I had another closet that I was I would, on a top, top shelf. I couldn't even reach. I had to take a stepladder to get to it. And I threw them all in there. And since there were thin paper, you know, the thin paper covers, they weren't thick like cardboard. Yeah. You know, they would, they would fit nicely all up in the closet. And I forgot about them. So when I started producing in 87, I went up there and started listening to those records. I was like, holy shit, I'm sitting on this crazy shit. 
And I tried making beats with some of that stuff, but it was too dark and eerie. These guys wanted the happy-go-lucky, uh, up-tempo shit. So I had to make that kind of music instead, you know, for rap records. And until, until like, 93, 94, I started really trying to do that type of stuff with Two Up in a Bounce Squad. But they weren't focused. And I had some crazy shit for them. And unfortunately, I said, you know, I'm sitting on these records. I'm going to put them out. Little by little, you know. Some of them, I never really listened to them all the way through. I st so I had to deal with it throughout the 90s. Listen to it here and there. And some of them I didn't want to even put out. I was like, this shit is crazy. I'm not even going to put this out, you know. Mm. It was like some of it I, I let go little by little, you know. And then I found other records that I had because I was, you know, every record I, I did, it was, it was because I was feeling it at the time. So now that I got 95 volumes and I put 25 songs on each volume from volume 18 all the way up until 95, yeah, you got more tracks to, to look for. Then there's the full, the full length tracks as well. I don't have to cut them for the vinyl because vinyl, you can only put 20 minutes aside. So I try to do 14 minutes aside to make them loud and clean. You know what I mean? And I did seven tracks on each side. And they weren't even full tracks. There was some were cut down, you know? Yeah. So now that I got digital albums, which is better because everyone's using digital now anyway, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's so much sample fodder on them. But the other thing about them is, and I think what makes the Dusty Fingers compilation series so good, is that I think the thing is with with something that's a good sample, quite often a good sample is two seconds of a song that's not very exciting. But I think what you, what you tend to find with your compilations is that they're good samples but also good songs. Correct. I try to find something that's, nice for the listener yeah nice for the people who sample and nice for the dj it's all around package so that's the type of records i try to put out yeah because I, I suppose with with the mixes the dusty fingers mixes that you've done they they kind of highlight that mm -hmm. the, the, although these are really nice smooth songs a lot of this stuff can be cut up in like breaks tapes as well mm-hmm you never heard my first one? Yeah, I remember hearing your first one in mid-late 2000s, yeah. like 2008, something like that. I never put the second one out. I only sold it to people online. Right. Because I didn't see the reason of pressing it up to CD no more. It was No one was pressing CDs no more. Yeah. The one I put out the first one, it was on a CD. Yeah. And I sold a thousand of those out the trunk of my car. Hmm. It's, cr it's crazy, yeah, when I heard that mix. Because what was mad with that, I thought was, it, although it was Dusty Fingers, it didn't have any of the breaks off the Dusty Fingers that I had, but it still got the energy. Yeah, it was totally different records. On the second one, I threw a couple of what I put out on the albums, but it was, I played them. I didn't cut them up. Yeah, those were very in the beginning. Then I then I had a slew of records that you never heard before. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. So I tried to make it interesting. Um, 
on the first one was like nothing that was on the Dusty Fingers. I might have put it out later on on my other volumes. Yeah, yeah. Because I will leak certain ones out, but some of them I don't leak out at all. Yeah. Whatever I use for the mix is for the mix. That's why a lot of people go, yo, your mixes are crazy because none of the stuff you did on your series were on the mixes. Mm. I was like, why would I do that? You already heard what I had on the albums. I'm going to give you something totally different. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's the way I got down, you know? So do you get any producers coming to you to try and get they like Danny? Yeah, of course. Have you got anything that's not been out? Yeah, yeah, I had, I had a few people. I'm not going to name no names. They came to me for music. Yeah. And they and they buy my they buy my new stuff. And they're always interested in in learning about new music, so they come to me and they know even if they got the record, mine sound much better because I curate my records yeah. to sound the best I can, you know? And that's what it is, you know? I mean, I love doing what I do and preserving music. Mm. That's my thing, you know? And, and I love music so much that I have to make sure it's nice and clean for me to enjoy it. And, and for the consumer to buy records that I, that I do, they have no complaints. Yeah. Yeah, everything sounds good, you know? And it sounds right, you know? And 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 if if you're a real producer, you know what to do with these records. Yeah, yeah. Even if you don't use them, you, it can spawn an idea for you to go to the studio and instruct people who know how to play instruments to kind of do that sound without you even having to pay for a sample. Well, this is something I was going to mention because you did. You've got the project, haven't you? The like re- replayed breaks project. I can't remember the name of it right now. Yeah, it was called the Dusty Fingers Orchestra. Yeah, because is is one of the first songs on Volume Two a Dusty Fingers Orchestra one? Um, no, that is by another group out right. in Paris. They remade the Brian Bennett song. Yes, that's Solstice. It, Solstice. I don't do replays. I make up my own music. Right. So on my album that I've done, it was done with me listening to certain stuff and tr- and getting ideas from certain stuff, but making my own music. And that's called the Dusty Fingers Orchestra. You can look that up. I did two 45s and one LP. Yeah. And I'm about to drop a new LP as soon as I get some money to do it because it's going to be very expensive i'm going to need at least three thousand dollars to do that yeah you know what i'm saying and that's hardcore cash you know and i don't know when i'm going to do it but when i get the money i'll do it and i could go on from there you understand yeah but that's uh that's going to be a project that's uh it's going to be 45 base only i'm not doing lps no more amazing so i'm gonna do a double 45 oh nice so i mean I just want to let people know that if they want to get in contact with me on Facebook, it's Danny Man, Danny Spaceman. And you could come to my Instagram page. It's Beatman2407Beats. And you could get me there. You could leave me a message if you want to order the Dusty Fingers, the Schoolyard Breaks, or any of the Strictly Breaks compilations. 
I have everything available. And then my mixtapes are also on sale too. You know, but I just want to give good music for the people to enjoy. And, you know, yeah. great music, timeless music. Because, I mean, you can play these records 30 years from now and they'll still sound like, mm -hmm. you know. And these records were made 40, 50 years ago. Some of them, you know. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And I think with sampling now as well, you, you get a lot more, say, like the Alchemist stuff. Yes. And other producers like that where... People are just letting the samples breathe. Right. But it, it doesn't matter, man. As long as you got a good sample mm. and you make a good song from it, that's what counts. Yeah, 100%. You know what I'm saying? Um, I mean, Jay Dilla, all these, all these producers know and use my stuff. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They might not admit it, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure they listened and bought my records. If you're not... Uh, into music that way you would never know about my records yeah so if you got to be really into music really into production and my record was there at the time where you will have to buy it because it was one of the illest records you could buy for the price you know what i mean yeah i i went in i went into, into this record shop and i was i think i must have just got up on i think i was went in and i was like i want something a bit like angela by bob james Right. And the guy, Mark, in the shop was like, you need to try these. And he mm. got me into the dust, Dusty Fingers, and as soon as I got them, my, my mind was blown. See? A lot of people at first didn't know what they were. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a gateway and an education to the... Yeah. To the like, introduces people to the world of library. And, and world music. Yeah. So the, it wasn't just library records, but it was a... That was an intricate part of it, but it was more than just the library record. It was the, you know, prog rock, funk and soul, uh, jazz, you know, and, and rare records that are hard to get. Yeah, 100%. Um, so if you stop DJing sort of late 80s when you, you kind of put all your energy into the production, yes. when, did DJ, when did DJing come back in for you? I started in 2003 again, officially. I was always DJing through that time, you know, um, but not doing parties as right. much as I would do. Like, I would do little things here and there. I never stopped DJing, but my main focus was production from 87 on because I sold all my equipment. Right. And I, I couldn't do my own parties anymore. But I would get invited to do parties with other people. I'll bring my records and I'll still rock. But sure. in 2003, I came back still carrying vinyl and going to these places and, and saying, yo, let me get on. Let me get on. It's, it, it was like a repeat of 1975. Yo, let me get on. Let me get on. But it was like, who are you? And then when they heard what I was playing, they was like, oh, shit, this guy's official. Because he's playing <laughs> shit that I forgot about. And yeah. I remember that we used to play back in the day. I was like, I told you, I'm such and such. I've been around. Because I, I look different. I was very skinny at one point, And I look very different. Right now, I look like Black Jack. I didn't even shave or nothing. But usually, I got my, you know, my goatee down. Uh, yeah. Real, sh you know, real low. But yeah, like, you know... 
this is me, man. You know, I've been doing this shit for years. And um, I'm going to continue doing it, you know. I'm not going to stop. So was was the kind of weird coming back? Or have you always stayed all vinyl or did you go on to Serato? No, I got into final, final scratch first. Yeah. Serato was not even thought of yet. Actually, they came out shortly right after. In 2004, they had a they had a version of you could use in the studio or something like that. I don't know. It was weird. And they had a version of it, but it was a prototype. And and they came out with a box. Then they got with Rain, and they perfected it. And then they started selling the box with yeah. the two records. And they packaged it as a thing. That was very interesting when they came out with that because that took over the whole industry standard. You know what I'm saying? Now you had two of everything instantly then. Yeah, that was cool. And then if you had... But a lot of guys, they downloaded their files. Yeah. I was already head of the game. I didn't download my files. I painlessly staking played one record at a time into the computer and made it into a file mm. which a lot of djs were not doing that they weren't doing that at all particularly in the early days yeah you, you got some really low bitrate mp3s yeah there was like whatever they were downloading crazy shit so my records my files sounded way better than theirs yeah and they were wondering why i was like i explained to some of them in private conversation i was like listen you got to take the record and record it into computer high quality and clean it up and master it but these guys would just record it and leave everything there crunchy whatever so th there was th you made a duplicate of what you have on record and which was cool but you had the but i told them, keep it as waves don't don't keep it but a lot of them didn't listen to me. They 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 were they were playing MP3s. So when they were playing in these large big clubs, you can hear the difference between me and them. Yeah. They would have to boost their signals because they were playing MP3 and they had to lower me down because mine were loud and powerful and, and clear. Theirs were shitty sounding. So then they started buying the files off of me. And that's how a lot of my stuff got around, you know. And I would tell them, listen, I, I make all these records and, you know, you could buy them from me directly, you know. Yeah. I gave away only to the, the pioneers my files, a certain set yeah. of certain files, you know. But they don't have everything because I kept, I kept growing and recording more and more records in I have such a vast library. I have like maybe, I don't know, 13, 14 terabytes of music. Wow. That's, that's, I mean, that's, for me, that's a lot, but I recorded all that by myself. So do you generally, when you DJ out now, would you generally go digital? I do both. I do 45s and digital. Mm. So I still use vinyl. You know what I'm saying? I do both because it's, if they're not paying me a lot of money, I'll come there and do digital. If you're going to pay me something extra for the vinyl, 
I'll I'll gladly go there with vinyl. Yeah. And that's it. But that's that's more money. And that's the end of that. And I rarely do those. But when I do my own thing with my peoples and we're going to do vinyl, we do vinyl. So do you still get to DJ out with the same kind of guys you've always played with over the years? Just sadly only one. Um, the rest of the guys that I used to DJ with, they either got married, they're into different things, they don't DJ no more, and they gave it up. Yeah. Um, my other partner, he's married, got kids and everything, but he still likes to DJ. So I hooked him up with a bunch of stuff. So it's all digital now, but he can still DJ. You know what I mean? Which is cool. Yeah. So, just to wrap things up, then, have you got any kind of key bits of advice for someone that's rather than DJing as such, just really wants to dig? You know, because digging in this day and age, like everyone's got access to discogs, everyone's got access to this, that, and the other, the internet. Like how? How in 2023 do you build a collection that's different and unique? Well, the way I do it, I still go out and dig for records. So I'll go to charity shops, flea markets, record shows, um, and record stores that are still around. You know what I'm saying? And I look for records. Because... And if I can't find it, I have record dealers all over the world. So if mm-hmm. I'm looking for, in particular, record like a Japanese artist or whatever, I have my Japanese connection. I have my French connection. I have my English connection. And I have my German conne- c- connection. Yeah. Which, how, how, did you, how did you build that network? Um, I've, been, I've been doing this through for so many years. I meet people. Mm. And and I and I've been to these stores myself, so I'll call people up. You know, I try to not, you know, have myself shop because people were always like, "Oh, that's such and such," and they'll overprice records to me. You know, mm. uh, so and I've been through that bullshit. I'm like, man, I'll send someone that that's like with titles. And they'll send me the record. They'll buy the record for me. And I send them the money in PayPal. That's the best way to do it. But when I'm digging around like certain areas in the Bronx, Manhattan, Queens, or Brooklyn, in in New York, I know certain spots I go dig through. You know what I mean? They know of me, but they don't know what I do. But if I sell them records, they know automatically. Yeah. But I have certain shops that I don't deal with people like that. I just walk in, do what I do, and, and whatever I find, you know, I spend the money on it. And, and it's, you know, it's cheap records. I'm not spending a lot of money on the record. So, and if I come up, you know, with something dope, I, you know, I, to me, every record could be usable, even if it's just a snare. Yeah. Or a hi-hat or something. So I listen for everything. And I don't take it, ah, man, this record don't got nothing on it. You know, if it's totally like I don't really like it or whatever, then I put it to the side and I bring it down 
to a charity shop and just give it to them so they can resell it it doesn't matter do you um do you have a process for listening through because i know like with diller it was that he'd clean his studio while listening to the new records he'd got is there something you do when you're going through or do you just literally sit and concentrate and yeah i do that i just sit there put the headphones on and i listen i I skim through the record at first yeah if i hear something interesting i just let the record rock from beginning to end and then i just skip through it if i hear something that's dope i'm gonna use it for something i re- I record it and that's it if it's if it's something that's interesting like multiple tracks on there that's interesting i'll record the whole album yeah and i'll save that i'll take a picture of the cover and and that's it boom Cause I think that's what I do. Like I'll skip through, but I probably skip through a bit too quickly and it might be that I miss some absolute gold, mm-hmm. but then it's having the right ear for it, isn't it? And, and well, you, you know, as soon as the track starts, but then again, a record could change in an instant. Yeah. Particularly in like the prog and stuff like that. Right. So like I'll, I'll listen to a few seconds of it. Then I, I'll just keep going. Then I'll go there and I might hear something. I go back like, Oh, that's dope. And I just keep going through it, you know? This is how I do it. I just go like this, and I just yeah. go through the whole record. Boom. Until I hear something that I like. And I have a good ear, I think, so my ear is just, like, on tune for what I'm looking for. Yeah, I think you just, what you understand is kind of the level yeah. of accessibility with music. Because when you're dealing with jazz, with prog, things like that, there's a really fine line between things that are, comfortable and easy to digest and right. things that are just a little bit too weird and bizarre yeah and and and, and, and noisy mm. it has to have a perfect balance where you know where it's soothing but yet dope and funky it has to be funky you know what i mean to me that's the only way i would i would i would, I would really listen to you know yeah <laughs> as a dj to play to play a record out yeah that's amazing, Danny. Yes. Um, I think that brings us up to date then. So um, is there anything else that you want to mention beyond just kind of, we'll reiterate about your socials and I'll add them into the notes and just basically, if people can support you, find your compilations, get in touch with you because um, there's absolute gold on there. I mean, any yeah, just come to my page, you know, like Instagram, beat Beatman, 24-7Beats. Or leave a link in the you know at the end of your video and just give me a, a DM and I'll take care of you whatever you're looking for on on my series. Brilliant. Facebook is Danny Man and you can leave me a message and I'll get back to you. And you know I'll I'll, fa- I'll, I'll definitely you know find some stuff for you if you want to hear some mixes I got them you know. And you've got the Bandcamp as well, haven't you? With with some of the mixes on. Yeah band camp but i don't really i really don't promote it as much you know what i mean people who know about it they know about it but i haven't updated it whatever's there is there yeah i I think it's i think with the band camp it's just a good way for people to kind of if they're not up on what you do it's a good kind of way for them to kind of get a quick yeah a quick listen exactly yeah about definitely but uh there's certain there's certain mixes i do not put up there 
you could get them directly from me. So yeah, and I'm gonna be making some more soon. So uh, definitely, you know, be on the lookout for that. But it was good talking to you. Likewise, and I really appreciate your time today. And, and definitely, like I mentioned to you before, I, I think what you've done for DJ and what you've done for hip hop is massive. So it's a huge honor to have you on and um, to get into some of your story. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the One to DJ podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at podcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at podcast. Take care and we'll speak to you soon. Oh, that was nice.